Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge your presence here this morning. Your spirit is in our midst because we are gathered together as your people. So we pray, the Lord, that uh, you'd work on us, <laughs> work on our hearts, open them up to your word, help us understand it, help us apply it, help us believe it, help us uh, wrestle with it this morning. Give us insight into ourselves and insight into our relationship with you in profound ways. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Plato attributed to Socrates the statement that an unexamined life is not worth living. I think that may be a little bit overstated, but I think there's some truth in that. I think it is a good thing to sit back and look deeply at your life. As Christians, I think it's a good thing for us to take some time and look deeply at our spiritual life. Sometimes we put it on the back burner. But this morning, we want to do that. We, we want to look, take a hard look at our relationship with God. We're going to do that by looking at Psalm 23. We have started a series on the Psalms. Last week, Larry said there are three categories you can kind of put the Psalms in. There are th Psalms that we would describe as thrive, that are Psalms of praise. There are Psalms that are die, that take us deeper in our relationship with God. There's Psalms that are survive psalms that help us get through the hard times. Psalm 63 is kind of a thrive and dive psalm. There's praise in it, but it's really designed to take us deeper into our relationship with God and look at it closely. So hopefully we will do that this morning. Let me make a couple observations, first of all, about the psalm before we get into the heart of it. Uh, the first observation is this. This psalm was written in the wilderness the little descriptor that comes with it says Psalm 63, a psalm of David uh, when he was in the desert of Judah. That word desert is midbar, oftentimes translated wilderness. With that description and the fact of what's revealed in the psalm that David is king, we, we know when this event took place. Uh, three times in his life David was in the wilderness, one when he was a shepherd boy raising the sheep. Second, when he was fleeing from Saul, he wasn't king at that time. 
But the third time, he was king, and this psalm describes himself as king, so we know this is the time he was there. It was when his son Absalom uh, fermented a revolt against him. Absalom decided that he wanted to be king, put an army together, won the favor of the people. And at this moment in time is marching on Jerusalem. So David heads to the wilderness. He heads out to the desert. He flees for his life because he's going to be pursued. So he's in the midst of the wilderness. Now the wilderness has uh, significance in scripture, both in a literal way and in a figurative way. Wilderness literally is a place of barrenness, of dryness. It is described as a place without water. It's a place of danger. It's a place where it's difficult to survive. But it has symbolic significance as well. Because all of us at times, in a sense, go through the wilderness. (laughs) Uh, The wilderness is uh, oftentimes suffering or hardship. And and it does certain things to us. The wilderness... uh, strips away all distractions. When you're in the wilderness, everything's taken away from you, and in a sense, you, you have this opportunity to focus. It's just you and God. And as a result, it, it kind of confronts us with ourselves. In the wilderness, our, our souls are kind of revealed, and we get to take a hard look at ourselves and a hard look at God. Even if the wilderness isn't literal, if it's figurative, it's still a place of danger and hunger and thirst and barrenness and testing. Uh, You probably know what it's like to be in the wilderness. Maybe you're in the wilderness now. God seems very absent. Life seems very hard. You're uncertain about the future. You're just struggling and things have focused in on just, you know, the distractions have been taken away and you're kind of reeling a bit. That's the kind of environment that this psalm was written in. The thing that's great about the wilderness, and don't forget this, it's also a time of growth, or at least has the possibility to be. The wilderness is one of those places where God transforms us and molds us and shapes us into what he wants us to be. So in a very real sense, the wilderness is sacred space. It's the place where we meet God. And he works in us to change us. So that's the setting of this psalm. David is in the wilderness, the midbar. The second observation uh, I want to make about this psalm actually comes from verse 1. David begins his psalm by defining the nature of his relationship with God. Notice what he says. He says, you, God, are my God. Now, a little word, my, is really important. David doesn't say you're God or you're a God or you're the God. Rather, he, he defines it as you're my God. And that little word, my, means that there's a relational connection. It means that there's an intimacy between him and God. What really David is saying is, I'm in, in a covenant relationship with God. And it's really going back all the way to Genesis chapter 15 and 17. Back there, Abraham is uh, conversing with God, and God is entering into this this covenant with Abraham, telling him that uh, God is going to be Abraham's God, and God is he's going to be his descendants' God, and, and thus he has this this commitment to Abraham and his descendants. And David is realizing that he's in the line of Abraham, and thus he he has this this relationship with God, this 
intimacy with him. And this notion of covenant is interesting. Covenant is in some ways like a contract, but different. A contract is all about performance. A covenant is all about relationship. A contract is made in an attempt to limit your liability and give you a way out of the relationship. A covenant is made, has consequences and expectations, but it is designed not to get you out of the relationship, but to keep you in the relationship. And it's interesting, if you go back to Genesis 15 and 17, you begin to discover, I mean, 15 is a weird place because God puts Abraham to sleep and there's this animal sacrifice and the pieces are spread apart and God himself walks through, which is a ceremony confirming the covenant. Usually both parties walk through, but in 15 only God does. And God is saying, my, my commitment to you is unconditional. No matter what. I'm going to be your God. And, and David is buying into that. He, he, he realizes that he's in this relationship with God, this intimate covenant relationship with God. Now, I think it raises a, a critical question for us because what happens in the rest of the psalm is David is explaining how that covenant relationship with God manifests itself or works itself out. And he gives us some markers, actually three markers. We're going to look at those. But the question it raises for us is simply this. Is my relationship with God genuine? Do I have a genuine relationship with the God of the universe? Is God my God? Now, I think we want to pay attention uh, to what David has to say here because uh, David is described in, in the scriptures as a man after God's own heart. In other words, if anybody knew the ins and the outs and the intricacies of a relationship with God, David did. He got it. Man after our own, God's own heart. So when he's talking, he, when he's letting us have some insight into his relationship with God, we got to pay attention. And what he's going to do is, is describe some of the markers that come about because God is his God. And I think they're markers that we can use to evaluate our own relationship with God and wrestle with that question. So I, wanna, I want us to be a bit introspective this morning and, and look deeply at our own hearts and our own lives. Now, some of you here this morning are just checking Christianity out. And uh, it's good you're here this morning because this will give you some insight as to what it would be like if you made a commitment to God and made God your God. So, so you can listen in. Some of you here this morning are sitting on the fence. You've been here a long time or a while at least, and you just never made a commitment God to you is still a God or the God or God, but he's not my God. You haven't jumped in. You're kind of still waiting. For you, this morning is opportunity. Some of you here this morning, um, if I asked you, do you have a genuine relationship with God, would say, I think so. I, uh, I've kind of always known God. Well, maybe so, but if my understanding uh, 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 of how God works in our life is there is a moment in time where we are spiritually dead and we become spiritual alive. It's like birth. Now, it's a definitive moment. It may not be a conscious moment. I understand that. But you should be able to look at your life in these markers and say, yeah, I am in or I'm not. And that's what this morning is for you to evaluate yourself. 
Then there's some of you here this morning that when I ask you that question, you say, well, of course, I know. I've got a real relationship with God. But even then, I think it's good for us to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verse 5 says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? So this morning, I think, is a, a good test for every one of us here to evaluate the reality of our relationship with God to see if He is my God. The three markers that manifest in David's life because of this covenant relationship with God. The first one is a desire for God, a thirst for God. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, earnestly, I seek you, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. David is uh, using this metaphor of thirst to talk about his, his desire to experience the reality of God in his life. Have you, have you ever been really thirsty? It actually doesn't happen to us very often because we hydrate ourselves so we don't experience thirst. So a lot of times, it's been a long time because water is so abundant for us, we don't really experience thirst. But, but notice, he says, this is thirst in a dry and parched land where there's no water. So, man, this is a person who's been without water, and, and our bodies are 70% water. And when we don't maintain that balance, there's something instinctual that goes off in our brains that makes us want water. And the more we're without it, the stronger that desire becomes. In other words, it becomes a dominating desire the longer we go. And it, it, it begins to consume you, this, this thirst for water. And David is saying, that's how I want God. Like, like I haven't had a drink and I need a drink and I'm in this dry place and there's no water to be had. I want him like that. An incredibly intense desire for an experience of God. Now that's really kind of interesting because I think most of us think this sense of God's absence is an indication that God is not in our lives. But here David is saying, no, the, the sense of God's absence is really a sign of his presence. In other words, David is saying the reason I desire God is because I'm in relationship with God, and I want more of Him. You see, if you, don't, if you don't know God, then you don't know what you don't know. And what the Scripture teaches is, is that really none of us on our own, by ourselves, seek after God. Romans 3 says none seek after Him. Now, it's not saying we don't have a desire for a spiritual experience or some vague notion that we want an experience of the transcendent, or it's not saying that we're not religious. I mean, that's part of the natural bent of how God created us, is to, to, to want something vague like that. But what it's saying is nobody on their own seeks the, the living God revealed in the Scriptures. God is the ultimate initiator. And what that means is when I, I hunger for God... I hunger for him because he's in my life. Seeking God is a result of knowing God. 
A sense of his absence is a sign of his presence. Which is really interesting because we, we, we sit there and we think, uh, he's not around. And we get nervous and we think, oh, well, I must really not know God because if I really knew God, then I'd have this sense of him, him being in my life. But just the opposite is true. If you don't sense him in your life and that really makes you nervous and dissatisfied and you want him there, that's a great sign. It means God's at work. Pushing you, drawing you, bringing you towards himself. Sense of his absence is a sign of his presence. It's a mark of him being your God. So we ask the question then, and I think this is an important question, why does David thirst for God? And I think we we get an answer to that in verse 2. He says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and, and beheld your power and your glory. Now, some people would say what happened is David is in the sanctuary, this place of worship, and he experiences a theophany, a, a visible manifestation of the presence of God. Um, possibly. I don't think that's exactly what's going on here because notice he says, I beheld your power and glory. And his, God's power and God's glory is not something you can reach out and touch, right? But it is something you can experience. So I think what is happening here is, is, is David is when, in one of those thin places, what I call thin places, and those are the places where, where the supernatural world and the natural world come very close, and the veil between the two is very thin. And he's in this place of the sanctuary where the veil is thin, and suddenly he sees into the supernatural world. It, it, it's this existential experience. Uh, um, and it rocks him. He, he, he beholds God's glory. He beholds God's power. And it changes him. He, he, he wants more of that. And suddenly, his knowledge about God becomes knowledge of God. His information becomes sensation. His, his doctrine becomes reality. God somehow at this moment in time becomes real to David. When that happens, he wants more. You know, you know it's in, interesting. If you go through the history of Christianity, you encounter this in people all the time. Augustine had this existential experience of God. Bernarda Claveau talks about it. Luther and Calvin and Wesley and Jonathan Edwards describe it. E- even Charles Spurgeon. I don't know if you know, Charles Spurgeon was, uh, some people think he was the greatest preacher in the history of Christianity. He, He had uh, this tremendous voice. He could speak to 10,000 people without any amplification. It's just a phenomenal voice. But he had a tremendous mind. I mean, you can go back and read his stuff, and it just blows you away. Uh, Just this uh, this massive memory, just a brilliant orator, just a phenomenal, phenomenal guy. But in one of his sermons, he writes about this experience he has. And one of the quirks of Spurgeon is when he talked about himself, he would always use us. He he says this, he says, some of us know what it is to be too happy to live at one point 
the love of God was so overwhelmingly experienced by us on one occasion that we almost had to ask God to stop the delight. If he had not veiled his love and glory a bit, we'd have died for joy. David thirsts for God because he's had this experience and it's ignited in him this desire. And that's what happens. The more you experience God, the more you want to experience God. And the more you get, the more you have to have. It's a, it's a little like fishing. A mundane illustration. I like to fly fish. But you know, uh, you would think if you went out and had a great day fishing and caught lots of fish, you would be satisfied. Do you know what? I am never satisfied. The more fish I catch, the more I want to catch. I've never ended a fishing, a, a, a fishing day that's been great and said, oh, I've caught enough, tomorrow I'll be off. No, I, I, if it's a great day, you know what? Man, the next day I want to go even more. Because you get a little and you want a lot. It's experience. It's great. You want more of it. You see, that's the marker of God in our lives. We want more and more and more and more of Him. L let me give you two quick applications about this that I think we need to wrestle with a little bit. The first is, if we want to experience God, we, we have to make it a priority pursuit of our life. I, if you go back to verse 1, he, he says, can we bring that up real quick, verse 1? I'm messing with our side per person. This little word earnestly says, earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you. Earnestly is a word that says being on the outlook for, uh, trying to, to, it's the notion of pursuing something. But it also can be translated early. In fact, in some version it says, early I seek you, I thirst for you. And I think David is saying, look, a priority pursuit of my life is this relationship with God. I, I don't do it on the backstroke. I don't just work it in when I can. I make it happen. I carve it into my life. Early in the morning, it's like it's the first thing I do is I am hard after him. And, and then he kind of expands us with this notion of thirst. He says, you know, it, it, this desire for God is more, it, it's the most important desire in my life. I think sometimes we get frustrated because we don't experience more of God in our life, but part of that is because in a, in a real way, we don't, we don't seek hard after him. So, so make it a priority pursuit. Second thing, I think we need to understand that we can hinder the desire. We can hinder the thirst. We can hinder the hunger. When I was growing up, you know, I'd get home from school around 3, 4 o'clock and I'd be hungry and want a snack. And uh, my mom would always tell me, hey, don't spoil your dinner. Because if you're hungry and you need a snack, eat junk food, it takes away the hunger. And then you don't really want the good stuff. I think we do a lot of that to ourselves, spiritually speaking. We, we uh, <laughs> take our desires and 
fill them in ways that don't lead us to God. We hinder our thirst. Sometimes, uh, I'll think of the things that can do it, a little bit of idolatry. Usually when we fall into idolatry, it's not because we're after bad things, it's after It's because we're after good things, and those good things become priority issues in our life. In in fact, they kind of take the place of God in our life. We're hard after the career. We're hard after the the great family. We're hard after success, and pretty soon our, our thirst and desire and hunger for God goes to the side. Sometimes it's just an issue of busyness. We don't carve out the time. Because life is filled with all kinds of stuff. Sometimes it's not an issue of idolatry or or busyness. It's just that we're just so satisfied with everything else. We are the most satiated culture in the history of the world. Right? So we don't have much of a sense of a need or desire for God because we're able to fill up our lives with all other kinds of things, possessions and entertainment and activities. Who needs God when you got all this? And sometimes what hinders our thirst for God is simply sin. Sin is an appetite suppressant. And when we allow habitual sin to creep into our life and we're no longer struggling against it, 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 it just pushes us away from God. It, 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 it limits our hunger and our thirst. So the first marker of God being my God is this desire for Him. The second marker is you worship Him. Look with me at verse uh, 3. David says, My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. What, what David is, is doing here, he's saying, look, because God is my God, I, I, I've got to worship him. And, and he describes it. I worship you with my lips. I, I worship you with my hands. I worship you even as if I'm satisfied. I worship you with my voice. In other words, because you're my God, my whole being worships you. Worship has to be a manifestation of our relationship with God. If we have no desire for worship, it raises huge questions about whether God really is our God. Now, how you express that can be very different according to personality. Uh, um, (laughs) Some people want to be very emotional in their worship. Some people want to be very reserved. Some people want to be very loud in their worship. Some, Some people want to be very very quiet. Some people want their worship to be very spontaneous, and that's the mark of true worship. And some people want it well planned and it to be very liturgical. I mean, there's all kinds of ways. You know, it can be very exuberant or very staid. That, the, how you manifest it isn't really the issue. That you manifest it is. That in your heart, you really give God his proper place in your life. You worship. It's a mark of the reality of a relationship with God 
in your life. Now, I think it's a great question to ask is, why does David worship? And he tells us at the beginning of verse 3, this is interesting, he says, he's had this epiphany that has fueled his worship, okay? And the epiphany is this, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. He's come to this realization that God's love is what life is really all, all it's about. Now, this is one of those places that I really don't like the NIV's translation of the word because they just simply translate it love. The, the Hebrew word here is chesed, and it is love, but it's a, a special kind of love. It's the covenantal love. It's loyal love. It's committed love. It's the kind of love where God is saying to you, no matter what, I'm going to love you. One author said, it's the love that says God is stuck with us no matter what. It's that kind of love. And David has realized that that is what life is about. In fact, that, chesed, is more important than all the other good things in life. God's love is more important than success. God's love is more important than a great relationship. God's love is more important than great food or great books or great job or great sex or or great whatever you want to put there. It's more important than life itself because it's what life is ultimately about. And when you realize that, it, it does some tremendous things. One, it's incredibly freeing. All of us go through life with these buckets that we're trying to fill up so that we can feel satisfied and good about ourselves and like our life counts. So we try to get a good job or we try to have a good marriage or we try to put good friendships or relationships. We're trying to fill up our, 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 our buckets, right? And, and we put all this stuff in there, you know, whether it's cars and homes or jobs or education, all this stuff. We, we think this is what life is about. I got to get the stuff in my bucket. And when we think life is about the stuff in our bucket, we become very grabby, very protective. Because, right, we got to keep our bucket full. David's saying, you know, what fills up my bucket isn't the stuff of life. What fills up my bucket is the love of God. And that's all I need. Because if I have him, everything else ultimately doesn't matter. So it's like David is going through life with his bucket full, and he realizes nobody can take it away. Now get this. He's in the wilderness, right? His son is hot after him. He has just lost the kingdom. He's had to move out of the mansion. He's not in it getting any great food anymore. All his concubines have been left behind. And he's saying, hey, guess what? Life is not about all that. Life is about this. God loves me. And that's all that matters. And when you have that epiphany, it changes your relationship with God. 
And you go from trying to use God to get you the good life to simply wanting God for himself. There's a little game that uh, grandfathers play with their grandkids. They take their hand and they put in their hand a few pennies or a trinket or a piece of candy. And then they wrap their fingers tight and the little grandkids, they come up and they pry the fingers away, right? And once the hand is open, they grab the penny or the candy and they run off and they giggle and it's great fun. And that's okay if it's grandkids and a grandpa. It's not okay if it's God and us. The good life, we think we have to pry out of the hand of God. And then when we get it, it's very easy for us to push the hand away. And David has gotten to the point where he wants God, not for the gifts that God gives him, but he wants God for himself. Because God's love, this chesed, this loyal love, this unconditional love, is realized is better than all of life. And realizing that makes him worship. When you become enamored with something, you have to celebrate it. You have to tell others. You have to praise the one you're enamored with because worship, it it, it completes the joy. If you want to see that, just look at this last week. Right? The Broncos win the Super Bowl. You think that would be good enough? Oh, no. We got to celebrate, right? We got to throw a party. And a million people show up. What's with that? Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But it does tell you something about the way we're wired. Man, it's part of us. We are worshiping animals. <laughs> when something gets, when we become enamored with something, something great happens, man, we, we got to tell other people. We got to praise it. We got to share it. We got to celebrate it. And that's David and God. He says, man, I, <laughs> I got to praise him with my lips. I got to praise him with my hands. I got to be satisfied with him like I'm satisfied with the best food. I got to say it with my voice. My God makes me worship him because I want to. Realizing he's mine, I don't have, (laughs) I can't stop it. So when God is my God, it results in me desiring him, in me worshiping him, and lastly, the last thing is you trust him. Uh, Look with me at verse 6 through 9. Through eight, I'm sorry. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Now, we picture that, and we think that David is worried. This is not a picture of worry. What David is doing, he, he's laying in his bed, and he's thinking about the guards changing watch. And, and he, he says, I think of you through the watches of the night. As the guard is changing watch, he's saying, you know, what really protects me is not the guard, it's God. I think of you 
during the watches of the night. Why? Because you are my help. And I love this image. He says, I sing in the shadow of your wings. It's this metaphor of this huge bird with her wings over her, 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 her chicks. And David is saying, I'm protected like a chick under your wings. And then he says, I cling to you. And the word here for cling is the same word that comes, that is used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when it, it, we're told that a husband is to leave his family and cleave to his wife. It's the word cleave. And David is saying, I, I cleave to you. Your right hand, and the right hand is the hand of authority and power. And he's saying, your right hand upholds me. You see, all these are expressions of trust. And David is saying, look, I am finding my ultimate protection in you. Now, that's an amazing thing. If you remember, at this moment, he doesn't have much reason to trust God, right? He's in the wilderness. His son is hunting him down. He has lost the favor of the people. At this moment, he doesn't have a standing army with him. Things look bad. Some of his most prominent advisors are going over to the other side to support Absalom. Things are bleak. So it makes you really wrestle with the question, why why does David trust God? And I think he tells us in verse uh, 9. He says, those who want to kill me, they'll be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God, and all who swear by him will glory in him, while the mouths of the liars will be silenced. Now, what we want to think is that David is just assuming that Absalom will be defeated and he will be restored to the throne. I don't think that's exactly what's happening here because notice he says, all who swear by God will glory him. When does, when does everyone who swear by God glory in him? That doesn't happen in this life. That ultimately happens in the next life, in the end. And, and you know what David is doing? He's stepping back and he's saying, look, I, I, I've got some perspective on this thing. I don't know how this journey into the wilderness is going to work out. I don't know if I'm going to be back on the throne. I don't know. Maybe Absalom is going to kill me. But I do know this. In the end, in the ultimate end, in the bigger picture of things, God wins. And, and because God is my God and he wins, then I win in him. In other words, in the end, I'm going to be okay. And it doesn't matter how painful or hard the journey is or how deep I am in the wilderness. Ultimately, because God is my God and he loves me with his chesed, ultimately, I'll be all right. And if that's true, then I can handle the now. I can handle this part of the story because I know the ultimate end of the story. I don't know what the nature of your circumstances are this morning or what wilderness you may be in. I don't know how nervous you might be about your future. I don't know 
how worried you might be about your job. I don't know how upside down you might be in your finances or how scared you are about your health. I don't know. But I do know this. In the end, God wins. And if God is your God, then in the end, you win with him and you'll be okay. And if you believe that, you can trust him. So David says, look, God is my God. And because he's my God, I desire him, I worship him, I trust him. How'd you do on the test? I mean, I mean do you have a real and genuine relationship with God. If you do, you will see those markers in your life. Because that's what it means to make God my God. I want to make sure this morning that you have an opportunity to enter into a covenant relationship with God. And that happens very easily. It's, it's just a matter of acknowledging the fact that we're broken, that you're broken, that I'm broken, uh, that we're sinful, and we, we can't create this relationship with God on our own. He has to intervene for us. Then it's simply a matter of believing in what he's done. Jesus died on the cross so that we might have access to God because in his death he pays for our sin and satisfies God's holiness. And thus, if we believe in him, God sees us in him, treats us as if we're his, his child, his son. And you enter into that by simply committing our lives to him as our Lord and our King and our Savior. See, ultimately, it, it's just a decision of our will where we, in a real sense, simply say yes to God. I want to make sure that if you haven't done that, at least you have an opportunity to do that this morning. We're going to have the band come back out, and I want you to take a hard look at your heart as we sing this last song. And, and if uh, God is not your God, take the opportunity to pray and ask him to be. Let's, let's pray together. Father, you... <laughs> You give us these markers that reveal the condition of our hearts. My prayer this morning is that as we look at our hearts, we discover that you're there. That we would desire you, that we would worship you, that we would trust you. Help that be true for us this morning. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.